Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. A lot of our partners are absent today. I thought it was because I'm starting a series called Exodus and everyone left, but that's not the case. So I'm glad you're here with me this morning. Have you ever heard the saying, a promise made is a promise kept? That's not always the case with human beings, right? But don't you love when someone keeps a promise? Even little ones. When I had some stomach surgery about 13 years ago, it was a trying time. I was struggling with insomnia and depression at the same time. And I remember a friend of mine said, hey, you mind if I come over and just sit with you? And I was like, okay, ever have someone just want to sit with you? So this guy, he came over and he he sat there and just sat there. And I was not feeling well and everything. And I couldn't sleep. So I had insomnia and we're talking. And then it hit me that he was a flight attendant. So I asked him, hey, would you mind reciting the boarding instructions? Because I fall asleep every time they do. And he said, welcome to United Airlines. I fall asleep. So it was a promise kept. Even the little promises are important. Because when a promise is kept, trust is built. What happens when a promise is broken? The trust bank goes down. But we can be grateful that God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. He always does what he says, and he always shows up on time. And this is why he's the God who remembers. So today we're going to kick off a new series through Exodus. Remember, we left off in Genesis, and then we did the truth heals, and now we're going to continue in Exodus, which starts right where Genesis left off. So in order to do that, We're going to look at a chart again to remind us where we are on the progressive revelation of God's story, because we're in his story. Do you know that? He's writing his story in us as well. So we start way back here, before time began, the eternal kingdom of God. Does anyone remember what Ephesians 1.4 says? He chose us, what, before the foundation of the world. So we, being the church, believers, He chose us even before he created the world. At some point, we don't know exactly when, but Satan is a created being. He fell and he ended up in the Garden of Eden and he tempted Adam and Eve and they fell. They believed a lie instead of God's truth. This is a cataclysmic fall of mankind and all creation and Satan has his own kingdom called the kingdom of darkness. But one day, that will hit a dead end, get to Revelation 20. Remember, we left off, we had Adam, then we had Seth and Noah. He talked about Noah and Shem. And remember Abraham, very important. Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Now we're going to pick up with Moses. And then the timeline continues through David and then Jesus Christ, the church and the future kingdom of God on earth. And it's important to understand this and to see the storyline. Because when we do that, the Bible makes more sense. 
we just left off in Genesis. And the key passage for today, read it with me, is Exodus 2, 24 and 25. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice. Jacob, whose name changed to Israel, is in Egypt. Joseph has died. That's the end of Genesis. Joseph dies there. And Exodus begins with the tribes, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Israel, who are now 70 in number. So they've grown quite a bit. And then, as you read through chapter 1, they continue to grow and grow and grow, and they're fruitful and they multiply, and they're becoming a great nation, just like God said they would. But the problem was that there was a new pharaoh, a new king, who forgot about Joseph, didn't know Joseph. Because remember, Joseph was like way up in Egypt, right? He didn't know Joseph, and he was not happy about this new nation growing and outnumbering the Egyptians. So what did he do? He enslaved them to hard labor. And then he went one step further. He instructed the Egyptian midwives to kill any Hebrew sons that are born and only let the daughters live. It's interesting because later God balances out the scales and he takes vengeance on Egypt. What is one of the plagues? The last plague is... The firstborn sons were killed, sadly. But here we see the Pharaoh killing God's sons. Here's what happened. The midwives got fearful because they feared God. And these were Egyptian midwives. So they let the boys live. So Pharaoh got really mad. He said, okay, instead of killing them, just throw all the sons into the Nile so they drown. So that's Exodus one twenty-two. Now, in uh, chapter 2, Moses is born, and his mother hid him for three months to save him from death, and she put him in a wicker basket, an ark, so to speak, and set him a sail on the Nile River. And the daughter of Pharaoh just happened to be bathing in the Nile that day and found the baby in the basket, and she had compassion on him, knowing that he was a Hebrew She took him in as her own, and she called him Moses, which means drawn from water. And later in Exodus, what happens? Moses walks through water, and God delivers his people through the water. Moses grew up in a palace, but had pity on the Hebrews. And one day he noticed an Egyptian beating his brother, which is a Hebrew slave, not his literal brother, but one of his brothers in Israel. Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And Pharaoh heard of this and attempted to kill Moses, but Moses fled into the wilderness in Midian, and Moses ended up marrying and had a son, and the king of Egypt died. And so we're up to Exodus 2.23, and it says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So what did they do? They began to pray, and they began to cry out to God for help. Now, it was coming on 400 years where they had been in Egypt. It's a long time. And sometimes it seems like it's 400 years before God comes through, right? 
we have to understand that there's always a purpose behind the waiting. And we see this in Exodus. Because what did God say to Abraham in Genesis 15? He told him what was going to happen. He said to Abraham, remember now, this is hundreds of years before, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. What's that land? Egypt. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But, God says, I will judge that nation, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And he says, as for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Where is here? Canaan, the promised land. And here's one of the reasons why God waited 400 years. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What's iniquity? Sin. The evil of the Amorites, which were a pagan nation and lived in Canaan, God was giving them a chance to repent. But they didn't repent. And he waited 400 years. And that's why sometimes we say, God, why are you so slow? You know, Peter wrote a slow. Peter wrote, said, God is not slow in keeping his promise. What is he waiting for? People to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So God is always working behind the scenes for people to get saved and for people to know him. But it would take 400 years for it to get to the point because nobody will stand before God and said, you didn't give me a chance. He waits. He gives everyone a chance. He was dealing with the Hamrites. What else was he doing? He was preparing Israel to get sick and tired of Egypt that they wanted to get out. I mean, sometimes that's what God has to do in our life, right? It's like, why is the fire so hot? Maybe he's trying to get you out the door to where he wants you to go, right? And then he's also preparing Egypt. They're the greatest power in the world, but God is going to show them who has real power when we get to the plagues. You see what's happening here? God is giving time for this all to happen. He's timeless. He's not constrained to time, but he uses our time, the time that we have, to get our attention. So Egypt was built up so that God could show his power and judge. Here's the bottom line. It's not about you. It's not about me. The Amorites had to prove their sinfulness as to lose their land to God's people. And this is going to happen at the end of time where God will judge the world and Israel will occupy the land in its fullness. And Jesus will reign on the earth with his church and we will reign in that land. So God is never late. Okay, God is never late. God remembers his promises. He remembers his promises. Would you agree with me that when God says something, he only says what's true? You know, the Bible says that he cannot lie, that he's not a liar. So every word that comes out of God's mouth is as good as a promise kept. But not only every word, every letter that's written in his word. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And the word law, Torah, 
is the teaching of God. The teaching of God is his story, and we're part of that, and it's going to go until it's all accomplished. Nothing will stop God's purpose. In Exodus 2.24, it says, So God heard their groaning 400 years, and God remembered his covenant, his promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant? Okay, did God forget about the covenant, about the land? No. The word covenant, berith in Hebrew, when it says God made a covenant, it's actually God cut a covenant with Abraham. The word karat means to cut. Do you remember in Genesis 15 that Abraham was asleep? God shows up and he walks through the two pieces of the animal to cut a covenant with Israel. And the way that the covenants would be formed during that time would be they would walk through two pieces of a dead animal to say to each other that if one person breaks the covenant, there will be just like this dead animal. It's a very important promise, a covenant. You know, a marriage is a covenant. We have what we call a partnership covenant. These are all very important promises that we make each other as people of God. Now, in Abraham's case, the covenant was made without Abraham walking through the two pieces. Do you remember why? It wasn't up to Abraham. If it was up to Abraham, would he have kept the covenant? If it's up to us. Now, the new covenant is the same thing. Is it up to us to keep God's covenant with us? What's our part in God's covenant with us in the new covenant? Believe, right? That's our part. Believe. What was Abraham's part? Believe. In fact, it says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same thing with us. When we believe God's word about Jesus Christ and we place our faith in Christ, we're saying yes to God and he's going to always keep his part. Our part's to believe. Now, what does it mean when God remembered? It's like 400 years and he forgot and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I forgot about Israel. Right? Is that what happened? Oh, shoot. I forgot. It's been 400 years. I should have done something. I should have put it on my to-do list. No, because the word zakar, which is remember, is more with regards to covenant application rather than recollection. In other words, when God remembered his covenant, it's to say that God decided at this time to honor the terms of the covenant. So it didn't even forget. This was the time that was ordained by God to honor his covenant. Now, what are the three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant? There are land, nation, seed. We see the land and the nation in Genesis 12, where God promises to Abraham. He says, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land. Which land was this? The promised land, Canaan, which I will show you, and I will make you what? a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that's the land and the nation. Where do we get the seed, the promise of the seed? In Genesis 22, God says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, Abraham, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate 
of their enemies. And the seed here, we're talking about Israel. But we learn in the New Testament that who is the seed? Jesus Christ in Galatians 3.16. So when God cuts a covenant, he keeps it. In Genesis 28.15, it says, Behold, I am with you. He's saying this to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, whose name became what? Israel. So we're just on the same page. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, Israel, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. See, here's the thing about trusting God's providence and sovereignty. It takes a weight off our shoulders. God's promise is going to come true. We could mess up in the worst terms. God's still going to do what he's going to do. That is freeing. Because did Israel fail? Was Israel ever perfect? No, Israel failed. So that's the first thing. God remembers his promise. Secondly, God remembers his people. God has not forgotten you, and he doesn't forget his people. So the people cry out. They're in bondage to Egypt, and they're like, God, Lord, help us. Now, what are they doing? They're praying. They're communicating with God. Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change us? When we pray, especially when we cry out to God, we become more conformed to his plan because it reveals to us that without him, I'm hopeless. So it's good that the people cry out. And what happens in verse 225 says, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. So took notice, the Hebrew word is yada, which means to know. So here's what it could really read. God made himself known to them. It's not like God... Go, oh, I forgot about Israel. Oh, there they are. You know, no, it's what he did. He is revealing himself to them now. Here's what's important about Exodus. And we're going to learn more about this next week. In Genesis, God doesn't really tell Abraham his name, does he? In fact, when you read through Genesis, the word for God in Genesis is mostly Elohim. We'll talk more about this next week. That's the big difference between Elohim and Yahweh, where God's going to reveal to Moses, this is who I am. So when he says he took notice of them, he's about to reveal himself to them through Moses. J.I. Packer writes, Thus the quality and extent of our knowledge and of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than are attempting to get to know them. And this is particularly true with God. If God did not reveal himself to us to know him, we would not know him, right? But he has revealed himself. In Exodus 3, 7, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And then in chapter 6, Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. So God sees the people suffering and he has allowed this suffering, right? I mean, he could have intervened earlier. Have you ever suffered or had a trial or a difficulty or tribulation and it just seemed like it was going on way too long? I have. Why is God doing this? 
Is he uninterested in me? Is he uninterested in you? Is he a distant God? Well, we know that's not true. In fact, he lives in us by his spirit. So why is God allowing this suffering? Let me put it this way. Let me ask you a question. When do you feel closest to God? When everything's hunky-dory and you're doing fine? Or when things aren't very well and not doing fine? When do you rely more on him? When you're going through tribulation, right? I mean, if we just had a life without any trials and tribulations, I think we'd just go, hey, thanks, God, we'll see you later. But when we're going through these things, like Israel is in Egypt, and it's going on a long time, it brings us to our knees. You see, if Israel had not suffered in Egypt, they would have not wanted to leave Egypt. And God had to get them out of Egypt to go to Canaan. Now, we do know, sadly, when they're wandering in the desert and Moses is trying to lead them, they complain and they say, we want to go back to Egypt, which is what we do too, right? God sends us somewhere or wants us to serve in a certain ministry or, or get plugged into a certain church. And it's like, and we get do that. And we're like, oh, the grass was greener back there. And then you forgot about all the stuff that God was doing to get you out of there, <laughs> right? We just naturally want to go back. But does God care about our suffering? The issue here is not whether we suffer. The issue is, does God notice our suffering? And the answer is yes. And David he wrote a lot of the Psalms. In Psalm 56, 8, he writes something incredible. He gives us a glimpse into God's compassion and remember, his enemies were coming after him. He was hiding in caves. He didn't know who was going to stab him in the back next. And he writes this, You have taken account of my wanderings or my travels. You have put my tears in your bottle and they're in your book. Isn't that amazing? Your tears, your suffering, your pain, your tribulation. God doesn't just know about it. He has them in his book and his bottle and he has compassion you to the point where he looks at those things and he reaches out and he's trying to say, just come to me. Stuart Douglas writes, his people can properly surmise that their suffering may well be a part of a plan, that it is a suffering with a distinct beginning and end, a hardship understood by and watched over by a sovereign who will not let it continue without good purpose and result. So what is God doing and what is the result? The result is your faith is growing. That's the result. Is that painful? Yes. But our faith grows through pain. Our faith grows through trials. Our faith grows through times of suffering. With that backdrop, we're going to look at Moses and we're going to find ourselves in the story. We're going to find ourselves in the life of Moses because it's our story too. So the birth of a leader, Exodus 2, 1 through 25, and the first fill-in is Moses was formed and called by God, so am I. Moses was formed and called by God, so am I. So with that backdrop, Israel's suffering, crying out, God is making himself known to them. Exodus 2 starts out with, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. 
when she saw that he was a fine child, and that word fine in, in Hebrew is tob, which means good or suitable, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said, it is good, it is suitable for my purpose. She hid him for three months. So she hid him for as long as she could. Now, I mean, you have to remember, if anybody found out that this Hebrew son was alive, they would have thrown him in the Nile. His mother tried to protect him, and I'm sure he cried and made a lot of noise. And the older the kid gets, the louder the crying, correct? Moses was born to a Levite father and a Levite mother. What's important about this is both his parents were tribe Levi. Why is that important? Because this means that Moses was unquestionably of the tribe that God would soon ordain to be his servant in the religious and spiritual leadership of Israel. That's important because Moses was going to step into that pastor leader role of Israel. God knows what he's doing, right? What tribe does Jesus come from? Judah, right? And we know that the Old Testament says he will come from the tribe of Judah. God, he doesn't forget things. This is all coming into play. He has ordained you before you were even born. Remember Ephesians 1.4, he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. Do you know that he has ordained you and called you and formed you even before you were born? Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I Yada, knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or I set you apart. I have appointed you, and he's speaking specifically to Jeremiah here, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations, but we're all appointed to that, to preach the gospel. Knowing this, God has ordained Moses before he's even born. You know what the Bible says? That God has prepared good works for you before you were even born. So that means all you have to do is do them. If God's already ordained them, they're going to happen. Now, Pharaoh tried to kill God's sons, God's kids. Pharaoh is a type of Satan because Satan wants to destroy what is God's. Herod, remember King Herod? What did he try to do? He tried to kill all the sons because he was trying to kill Jesus. Herod is a type of Satan. Because Satan wants to destroy God's people. Here's the sad part. Think about how many Moseses and other leaders that Satan has killed in the mother's womb. That's sad. That's what Satan wants to do. We are like Moses. We are called to be leaders. So when I say here, the birth of a leader, do you know that you're a leader? How do we know this? What does a leader do, basically? I think a leader, if you boil it down, makes a difference. And here's what I mean. If you have a thermostat in a room, you can set that thermostat to a temperature. Leaders set the temperature, so to speak. They change the atmosphere. Now, you could be a godly leader and set it at a good temperature, or you could be an evil leader and set it at the wrong temperature. But the point here is that when Jesus said to you and me, be the salt of the earth, what does salt do? It changes things, right? When he says, be the light of the world, what does light do? 
It changes things. We're all supposed to be changers. We're all supposed to be leaders. We're all supposed to be difference makers. Now, sometimes God calls certain people to different positions of leadership, but if you're a Christian, you're a leader. You're supposed to make a difference. Does that make sense? So we're all like Moses. And like Moses, we were chosen and set apart before we were born. Again, Ephesians 1.4, read it with me. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his height, to be set apart for his service, just like Moses. You ever heard God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called? I believe that's mainly true, but I also believe that he is equipping you. But if someone's not available, can God use you? He used a donkey. He used a pagan king. But isn't it better to be used in a way that is righteous in the sense that, God, I'm not going to fight you on this. You're God, I'm not. Use me for your glory. Make me your voice for your glory. Whatever it is, that's how you should start every day. Lord, it's not about me. You have a work plan for me today. Set my schedule. I have my schedule, Lord, but you're in charge of my schedule. You're in charge of my money. You're in charge of my time. That's how it should be. Now, did Moses choose God or did God choose Moses? Moses didn't choose God. We don't choose God. God chooses you to be on his team. Remember Esther? Esther was like Moses in a sense where she had an incredible position in the palace when Haman, a pagan loser, wanted to kill the Jews. And Esther 4.14 says, For if you remain silent, Esther, at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, because God's going to do it. But you and your father's family will perish. You'll miss God's blessing. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for, read it with me, such a time as this. Don't miss God's call for such a time as this. This is now, today. God wants you to build up his kingdom as Moses did. And secondly, Moses was protected and provided for by God. So am I. God protected Moses and provided for him. So God protects those he calls. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's the point. Is God's hand strong? How about two hands? How about three hands? How about four hands? Here we got four hands holding you. That word snatch is an interesting word. It's the same word used for the rapture where it says those who remain will be snatched out of this world to be with Jesus. Because we don't belong to this world. And this world is not holding you. God holds you. Jesus is the good shepherd. And that's what he's speaking about in this passage. He's saying, no one's going to take you from me. I'm your shepherd. And you know why he's the best shepherd ever? He not only provides and protects for you, he died for you. D.A. Carson writes, far from being accidental, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd, a point presupposed in Hebrews 13.20, which acknowledges Jesus to be that great shepherd of the sheep. And by his death, far from exposing his flock to further ravages, he drew them to himself. God protects us. God provides for Moses when he's three months old by providing a wicker basket. 
That's what some of the translations say. But the word teba is ark, and it's the same word used for Noah's ark. Now, here's the question. Who wrote Exodus? Moses. Do you not think that as he's writing this, he's associating himself with Noah? Stuart writes, It's hard to imagine that Moses was not keenly aware of the obvious comparison between himself and Noah. They both were deliverers and rescuers who were called by God to lead people and animals through and out of danger into a new location where those people and animals would become dominant in establishing a new stage of God's unfolding plan of redemption of the world. It's amazing. So Moses was prepared and proctored by God, so am I. What's proctored? It's to teach or examine. God is doing that in our life. So God now prepares Moses in a way I'm sure he didn't expect. That is how God works. So how did God prepare and proctor Moses? First of all, through education. It's interesting in Acts 7, 22, we read here that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Now what does it mean, educated in all the power and learning of Egyptians? Why would God send Moses to Pharaoh's house in an ark? Egypt, even to this day, is incredibly known for education. It was a highly developed civilization. What is one of the seven greatest wonders of the world? The pyramids. Egypt was a center of education, particularly in the area of engineering, mathematics, and astronomy. Do you know that they were the first to develop the 365-day solar calendar? Their priests and their doctors were really good at embalming people. Their leaders were skilled in organization and administration. I mean, it took a lot of organization and administration to build pyramids, right? And Moses got all that education for free. God always equips the called. You've heard God never wastes a hurt. Well, he's never wastes your education, and that could be through an institution or through experience. God is never going to waste your experiences. How did God prepare and proctor Moses? Through failure. And this is the part we don't like. So turn to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, Now it came about, so this is after he's drawn from the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up. So it skips to when he's 40. He's almost 40. He went out to his brethren or his brothers. Now his mother must have told him something because we don't know how he knew, but he looked to their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down or murdered the Egyptian. Now we don't know that Moses had an anger problem, right? And it's kind of interesting that the one with the anger problem was given the commandment about those type of things, don't murder people. So God's grace. Buries him in the sand, and he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your neighbor? That's the companion. Moses is already trying to lead the sheep of Israel. They're fighting with each other. But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Well, God did. Are you intending to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian, uh uh-oh, the word got out. Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. So Moses now is about to go into the wilderness for another 40 years. 
So think about that. God's timing is not our timing. Warren Wiersbe writes, These two incidents reveal Moses as a compassionate man who was sincere in his motives but impetus in his actions. Knowing this, you could never suspect that later he would be called the meekest man on the earth or most humble. Moses' failure to help free the Jews must have devastated him. That's why God took him to Midian and made him a shepherd for 40 years. He had to learn the deliverance would come from God's hand, not Moses' hand. And that's what God teaches me all the time. Next, how did God prepare and proctor Moses? Through humble service. Stay there in chapter 2. Then we'll continue starting in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them water their flock. Moses is already standing up as a leader, protecting these women from these shepherds that are trying to take their water. When they came to Ruel, now that is an interesting thing because Ruel is the same name as the man who's called Jethro. Jethro would become the father-in-law of Moses. Their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian delivered, they thought he was Egyptian, deliver us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. Isn't that interesting? Think he learned something already? He's learning. He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you left them out there? Invite him to come over to something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man or live there. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom because it means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw that the sons of Israel and God took notice of them or he made himself known to them. Next week, we're going to pick up with God's speaking to Moses. Well, here's the thing. God had to send Moses to take care of stubborn sheep in the desert. Why? Because he was going to have to take care of stubborn sheep in the desert, Israel. And I wonder if Moses is going, what in the world is God doing? I hadn't made the shade. I lived in the palace. And now I'm living in the desert, working as a shepherd. I must be demoted. But he wasn't demoted. He was being promoted to God's service for God's plan for his life. God was writing Moses' story. And he's writing your story. He's writing my story. So can we make a decision today? Can we not try to take the pen out of God's hand? Let him write it. Let him do it. So where are you in this story? Maybe you feel like Moses. Like, what is my purpose? I'm in the desert. Maybe you feel like Israel. Why am I suffering? Why is this taking so long? Wearsby writes, God's delays aren't evidence of unconcern, for he hears our groans, sees our plight, feels our sorrows, remembers his covenant, What he has promised he will perform, for he never breaks his covenant with his people. When the right time comes, 
God immediately goes to work. For such a time as this, God has placed you and ordained you and set you apart for his service to build his kingdom just like Moses. But we have much more than Moses because we see the whole full revelation of God. And we see how it ends. You know how it ends? We win. So let God have the pen. Let him write your story because he is the God who is. And part of that is that he remembers and he knows exactly what you're going through, exactly when you're going through it. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together to look at the life of Moses, but mostly to look at the story that you're writing in our life, that you are a God who remembers. You never forget. And in remembering, you are doing something right now in our life that is for this time, for this purpose, to glorify you in this earth, to be salt, to be light, to make a difference. And Lord, when we can just let go and let God, we can experience peace. And I pray, Lord, that's what we would do as we continue through this week and come back next week to hear the rest of the story and how you use this man, Moses, that had an anger problem to lead your people and deliver them from sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com.